some years back, there was a, an advertising campaign by the folks over at the Holiday Inn. And, you know, they had rebranded some of these hotels as Holiday Inn Express. And I don't know if you remember, but the scene is like there's like a person, a random person who ends up in an operating room somehow. And they're like doing brain surgery. And the brain surgeon leads the person, this person and says, what do you think about this, that, or the other? And the person gives, you know, gives advice, gives a response. And the person says, um, well, you know, are you, are you a doctor? And the person says, well, no, but I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You know, and there's, there's a several of these commercials, you know, doctors and professionals in various fields and all of that. It's clever commercials. Uh, their only qualification for giving advice, right, was that they slept in a Holiday Inn Express last night. Some of you are like that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, it's clever. It's a clever commercial because it, it brings up the issue that qualifications do matter, don't they? I mean, that's the whole premise. That's why it's funny. Sleeping at a particular hotel doesn't make you qualified to perform brain surgery or to offer expert opinion on fixing an engine in a car. When we offer advice, when we tell people what we think or our opinions, even offer them counsel what we think they should do, there's an inherent question that should be embedded in all of us. Why should I believe you? Like, What, what qualifications do you have to speak to me about this particular issue? Qualifications matter. If you've ever had a bad mechanic... You know, qualifications matter. Financial advisors, qualifications are important if you're seeking a financial advisor. If you're seeking a counselor and making decisions in your life, working through issues, qualifications matter. And it turns out qualifications matter when it comes to the identity and authority of the Messiah. That's really the central issue in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's giving us a sneak peek or a picture of all these different responses to Jesus. And one of the responses that he's focused on is how the religious leaders, especially in Galilee, they were not a fan of Jesus. They wanted him to prove he had the authority to be saying what he is saying, to be doing what he was doing. And you'll remember just a few weeks ago, we saw that those religious leaders accused him of performing miracles by the power of Satan. Of course, Jesus counters that and says, well, you know a tree by its fruit. You have spoken evil of me, which means you are evil. These leaders that are pretending to be or are presented as good in their community, they have now challenged Jesus' authority. And so there's a little back and forth going on in Matthew 12. And what we find this morning in verses 38 all the way down to 45, we find a continued conversation about on what authority is Jesus healing and teaching? By what authority does he do what he is doing? Today, these leaders ask Jesus for further validation of his identity and authority. And as we listen to this passage, we need to consider our own response to Jesus' identity and authority. We need to ask, why should I believe Jesus? And, crucially, am I believing Jesus? Why should I believe him? And am I believing him? So with that preparatory work in view, let's look now at verse 38, and we'll We'll walk through this conversation and see how Jesus responds to these teachers, religious professionals, scribes, Pharisees. We're in verse 38 there of Matthew 12. Again, Matthew writes, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. A couple of things I'll note there just in verse 38. The first is that the very first word there in the CSB is the word then. And that is important because it helps us understand that this is a continuation of the conversation that's already been happening. So, again, we've had this tussle. You do miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus says a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he, of course, accuses them of being evil because their words are evil and that they are condemning him. 
And so we've got this back and forth. And so Matthew connects this conversation to that context. And he says, then, along with that same conversation, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him. Now, the Pharisees and scribes, let's talk about these two groups, right? Scribes were professional students and teachers, and that's kind of a a broader group. Professional students and teachers studying and teaching God's word, right? So professionals in the law of God. And so in that group, right, there would be a subset of that group that would be known as Pharisees. They were more kind of like passionate about a particular version of Judaism in that day, a particularly conservative version of Judaism in that day. And so the Pharisees and scribes aren't necessarily always the same thing, but here they, they are the same thing in that they are opposed to Jesus. These are the local guys in Galilee, but nonetheless, they don't like what he's teaching. They don't like the authority he's claiming, and so they've challenged him. So in verse 38, they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Although this is phrased in respectable language, they refer to Jesus with that term rabbi, teacher, right? They, they refer to him with that, that uh, honorific. The fact is, they're not really interested in the sign. And it was funny, I was reading this week about this passage, and there were a couple of opinions about whether or not these guys had seen any of the signs. Because if you've been reading in Matthew, just the last four chapters, I mean, sign after sign after sign after sign. We've hit so many signs. And so the, these guys show up, and it's, it's really almost humorous. They show up like, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You can almost envision Jesus being like, uh, have you been around? <laughs> like, recently? Talk to the throngs who have been following me. Like, talk to the multitudes that have been healed. And, I, you know, I mean, it's, what? You, oh, now, oh, you want to see a sign. Oh, you want a real sign. Oh, okay. Like, not any of these others. And, of course, Matthew has actually shown that the signs Jesus has been performing, they actually fit in with those prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah. So we've seen that connection already. So they've already got sign proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So they've already got it. Uh, And even if they didn't see it, they they had access to that information. So Jesus sees right through all this, right? They demand a sign. They ask for a sign, maybe respectfully, but nonetheless, they're questioning, don't miss it, They're questioning his authority. We don't believe that you are authorized to be teaching what you're teaching and doing what you're doing. So we want you to prove, do you have a badge? Do you have authentication papers? We demand a sign from you. You've got to prove it. Now verse 39. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If we pause here, just in verse 39, we want to acknowledge Jesus' characterization of the generation that rejected him. He says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. That terminology is loosely inspired, we think, by Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the Song of Moses, where Moses talks about his generation who witnessed, right, the, the miraculous ten signs that God performed through Moses and Aaron in delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. And they experienced God's miraculous provision in the wilderness, right? And so they they actually had God miraculously provide food and water for them in the wilderness. And these were the people who did not believe and therefore did not enter into the promised land. And Moses calls them an evil generation. Here Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous here is a reference to their spiritual infidelity. It's a a concept that's regularly used in the Old Testament prophets 
that envisions Israel as a, a, a wife and God as her husband. And yet when Israel worships false gods, they are in effect committing spiritual adultery by going away from their faithful husband to someone else. It's, it's a, a term that's meant to, or a picture that's meant to invoke spiritual disgust. Why would you do that? You should never do that. And here Jesus says, this generation, the generation that witnessed his first advent, it's an evil and adulterous generation because it demands a sign. That no sign will be given to it, he says. Well, except one. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says, your unbelief is clear. And he's not saying every person did not believe. Of course, some did believe. But by and large, the religious leaders led the people in the majority in rejecting Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. He says, that's an evil and adulterous generation. And I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to jump through your hoops. Actually, except for one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Watch verse 40 as Jesus explains this sign. He says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of, heart of the earth three days and three nights. Okay, so here we go. Jesus, you know, these are professional students and teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the enforcers of the law amongst the people. These are Bible people. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you another sign. Right? I'm not going to jump through this hoop for you, except for one sign I will give you. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. And you can almost see these guys standing there going, wait a minute, the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, and they're calculating, wait, what, which, what? And they're thinking about the prophet Jonah. You remember the prophet Jonah, ninth century, okay, B.C., Jonah is called by God as the, the spokesperson for God to his people to do a special mission and go to Gentiles in Nineveh. Nineveh, that was infamously wicked, okay? Really, really bad people. Californians, like that bad, okay? So just put it in that category. So, so Jonah is called to go to, to Nineveh. You remember, of course, Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. He does not want to see the Ninevites respond and be, be forgiven in the sight of God, to be blessed by God. He is not interested in that. They're not good people. He doesn't want to go. And you remember, of course, he gets on a ship going the opposite direction. We're very, very quickly summarizing the, the book of Jonah. But, of course, when he's on that ship, the Lord sends a storm. These pagan sailors figure out this is the, this, this is the issue. We need, we need to deal with this problem and respect uh, Jonah's God, and so they end up tossing Jonah overboard, and of course Jonah is swallowed up by this fish. In Jonah chapter 2, he is sitting in the intestinal tract of this large fish at some place, right? And he is experiencing what had to have been a pretty terrible experience. And he poetically, he, he kind of uh, prays about that experience, and he, he mourns it as if he has died. He refers to it as if he is dead and in the abode of the dead. And of course, the 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 fact is, God wasn't done with Jonah. And so the, the fish spits him out, and he's on dry land, and he ends up following through on the mission. He goes to Nineveh, and what the shocking thing happens is that he gets to Nineveh, he preaches, and the people respond to the message, and they repent, and which makes Jonah pretty upset. And of course, there's more to the story, but that's, that's the core details that we need for the moment. When Jesus says, the only sign you'll be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah, he is making what is not an obvious um, connection to his work and the prophet Jonah. He says in verse 40, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, that's his term for himself, the Messiah, he will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, the three days and three nights, don't get distracted there. They're, the way they reckoned days in uh, the first century in Jewish culture was if it hit any part of a day, it counted as that day. 
So it's not necessarily literally three days and three nights. Some people have gotten the chronology of the Passion Week messed up because of that. And there are other uh, examples in the Old Testament of three days and three nights actually just being three days. So don't sweat the three days and three nights. But the point is that Jonah was in the fish for three days. And just like that, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, he will be buried. He will die and be in the earth three days. But as Jonah was spit out of the fish, so Jesus will rise from the dead. He takes this experience of Jonah that was like a, a, a death-like experience, and Jesus says, actually, I, the Messiah, am going to give you a sign, this evil and adulterous generation. The only sign you need, the only sign you need is my death and resurrection. That's the sign that you need. You haven't believed the healings. You haven't believed the exorcisms. You're not receiving my teaching. But he says, what you will see and the sign that you really have to grab onto here, the one that matters more than all the healings and the exorcisms, is my death and resurrection. The sign of Jonah was the sign they needed. And the fact is, today, for you and me, nothing has changed. The sign of Jonah is the sign we need. Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate authenticator of his identity. It's his badge, if you will. If you say, well, what right do you have to come around here and tell us what to do? What right do you have to, to, to tell me I shouldn't do what I want to do and I should say no to temptation and say yes to you? And the badge, right? It, it's not the healings. And it's not the exorcisms. It's not all of those other things that Jesus did. The ultimate badge is his death and resurrection, the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, I died in your place and I conquered sin and death and resurrection. Is that good enough for you? Is that a good enough sign? And the fact is, this evil and adulterous generation, for many, it wouldn't be a good enough sign. But Jesus says, that's the one sign that you need. This is the sign that matters, the sign of Jonah. Why believe Jesus? Well, because he died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the reason. All the other stuff is amazing, and it does confirm his identity, but that's the primary reason. Because of the sign of Jonah. Well, we could go on, though. Because if you're here this morning and you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? There's more to it than just initially putting your faith in Jesus. That's, of course, the first step. Praise God for that step. But the fact is we're called to more, aren't we, as followers of Jesus? We could say, why should I say no to temptation? I mean, if I'm covered for eternity, why not just give in? Why not just, you know, enjoy life and do whatever I want to do? Why, why make a hard decision and say no to sinful desires? The answer, fundamentally, there are many answers, but the primary answer to that question is because of the sign of Jonah. Because Jesus died for your sins, and he conquered sin and death and resurrection to lead you in living a different life. So why say no to temptation? Because of the sign of Jonah. Why count the cost? Be following Jesus, right, short of his return, following Jesus right now is hard. It puts us at odds with our culture. It, it puts us in an awkward situation with our family members, perhaps, or friends, or neighbors, or coworkers, or students, or whatever. And we are called to count the cost of being his disciple. Why would you bother doing that? Well, because of the sign of Jonah. Because he died for you and rose from the dead, proving who he is. Why would you confess sin? Why would you acknowledge your failures and things you should be ashamed of and things that prove that you don't have it all figured out and are embarrassing? 
Why would you confess sin? Well, because of the sign of Jonah. Because Jesus died for our sins to rescue us from them. By confession, we're acknowledging, yes, we have failed, but we look to him for forgiveness. And how can we be sure we're forgiven? Well, because he didn't stay buried in the earth for three days. Why should you submit to Jesus today? Because of the sign of Jonah. Why should you value his bride, the church? Because of the sign of Jonah. I mean, we could go on. But if the question is, why should I believe Jesus and continue to respond to him in faith? The answer primarily, right, is because he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And Jesus says, that's the sign of Jonah, and that's the sign that we need. That's ground zero for God's plan of redemption. It's the main event in the messianic mission. And really, in the Gospel of Matthew, that's where everything is heading. So we have this foreshadowing by Jesus himself. He knows what's coming, right? And so here he's preparing the generation. Even though most will reject him, he's saying some will believe. And so here you go. You want your sign. It's coming. But it's the sign of Jonah. Now, there's another aspect, though, to the Jonah story with Jesus' moment here dealing with this tussle with the religious leaders over authority. And that, again, is the, the issue of their response. So watch verse 41. He goes on. Still talking about Jonah and the context of Nineveh, he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, that generation, right, that he witnessed his first advent, and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, These Gentiles, infamously evil Gentiles, On the day of judgment, they will actually stand as judges. This is similar to something Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew about how Sodom and Gomorrah will judge. Like like Sodom and Gomorrah will actually acknowledge you should believe in Jesus and and you should have responded in faith to him. Like he's he's using these uh, Gentile scandalous uh, characters and features to focus on the fact that If you are reasonable and you've seen his ministry and you've heard his teaching, you should respond in faith. So he says, the Ninevites got it. I mean, Jonah didn't even want him to get it. Jonah's officially like the least motivated preacher in the world, right? Because he shows up in Nineveh and he's like, he probably is like this. You know, like he's he's mumbling. He's like, you want to just take a nap? Go ahead. This is going to be a long one, you know, or whatever. I mean, he was, he was giving them every out. He didn't want them to repent. And shockingly, they repented. It's beautiful. The grace of God poured out onto the Gentiles. It's just a beautiful picture. And Jesus says, the Ninevites will look at this generation, that generation that witnessed Jesus' first advent, that saw him do miracles, that heard him teach. The Ninevites will stand in judgment over you on that day of judgment because they repented. You, you refused to repent of your sin and trust in me, but the Ninevites did it. And then it's so classic. Jesus says, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, that's, a, that's an idiom that something, he's saying someone, right? Someone greater than Jonah is here. What's the point? The point that Jesus is making, it's not just that he's greater than the prophet Jonah, who kind of experienced a death-like experience in the belly of the fish. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the greatest prophet. I'm greater than Jonah, and I am the greater prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is the spokesman for God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophet Moses, regarded by Israel as the greatest prophet in many ways, 
Moses himself says, a greater prophet is coming, right? And so in Deuteronomy 18, there's this anticipation of the greater prophet. In fact, in some of the debates about Jesus' identity in the Gospels, they question, is he the prophet? Is he the one that Moses was talking about? But here Jesus, you know, latches onto the Jonah image, and he says, I am greater than Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here right now. And if the Ninevites repented, don't you think you should too? Jesus is the greater prophet. Don't miss the, the significance of the role of the prophet because the prophet gives the word of God. So here Jesus is concerned not so much with their response to his miracles, but especially with his response to his teaching because he teaches the word of God. He is speaking to them the word of God. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that what Jesus has taught and what Jesus passed to the apostles that they have gifted to us in his word, do you believe that that is the authoritative word of God in your life? This is why we value the Bible. It's not because we value this as a book. It's because we worship the one who has authored it. Right? It's because we worship God that we value his word. But we have to ask the question, do we value God and do we therefore value his word? This generation that Jesus calls evil and adulterous, they were rejecting him. They refused to repent. They rejected his teaching. Rejecting Jesus today might look like that, that bold-faced rejection, rejection as we've talked about in recent weeks. But it also might look a little bit more like ignoring or neglecting his word. Um, you know that I love my beloved Lindsay so much, and I often refer to my failures as a husband for your benefit, okay, in our sermons. But every once in a while, Lindsay accuses me of not listening to her. And I mean, I almost always am guilty of that. <laughs> so let's just be honest. Because I'm a husband, and so it's just part of the struggle, right? So there it is. Uh, how does Lindsay know that I'm not listening? Because I have to ask her to repeat what she said. Because I have to call her from the store. Why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing? You know, all these little, it's just expressions of love. I'm so dependent on her, and I'm so thankful for her, right? But she's right. Sometimes I don't listen to her, and the proof is in my behavior. I, I wasn't paying attention. She can tell it, too. She can tell. It's, she has, uh, anyway, spider sense on it. Anyway. <laughs> Rejecting Jesus today, though, it, often I think that's what it looks like. It's not this, oh, God, I hate you, and Jesus is satanic, that these guys, it's not, it's not so much that. It's just, eh, don't need this. I've got other things going on, right? I don't, I don't need to hear the word of God given by the one greater than Jonah, Right, the greater prophet. I, I, I've got other things that, are, that I'm too busy with or that are more important to me than hearing from the word of God. The sign of Jonah warrants listening to Jesus and his apostles. If Jesus hadn't died for our sins and risen from the dead, then he's just maybe another teacher or another prophet. But the fact is, the eyewitness testimony that we have passed down to us confirms and validates that yes, he did actually die and he did actually rise from the dead. Which means... We should listen to him. So are you listening to him? Now we're talking about valuing his word, reading it, memorizing it, talking with others about it, hearing it preached and explained, listening to his word, giving him the respect that he is due as 
the greatest prophet. You know if you're listening to Jesus, if his word impacts your decision-making. The fact is, you could even still fulfill a yearly read devotional program and not really listen. And so the question is, am I listening to his word? Do I believe that his word is the very word of God, and therefore, do I value it, and do I allow it to transform my life? When Jesus speaks, his authority, right, to speak into our life and to command us and to lead us doesn't have anything to do with sleeping in a holiday inn, right? It's about the sign of Jonah, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's not even all. Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah is here with you. And then, he, and then he goes on to another example, another Gentile example, as a rebuke to this unbelieving generation. Watch verse 42. He goes on and says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south is a reference to the queen of Sheba. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, this queen comes to, from what is modern-day Yemen, so the very southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, she comes a long way to visit Solomon, king of Israel, because of his uh, reputation for wisdom. And as she comes and meets with Solomon, she brings to him her concerns. She humbles herself and says, this is what's going on, and I need help in these areas. And Solomon offers her wisdom. And it's interesting, if you read in 1 Kings, she responds with worship. She praises Yahweh, the God of Israel. And while maybe we don't know for sure if that's genuine saving faith or not, it's kind of beside the point. She receives wisdom, blessing, and she uh, affirms the goodness of the God of Israel for being the source of that wisdom. Jesus says she will rise up with the, this generation in the judgment and judge it and say and it should be condemned because she came so far to hear the word of God to hear wisdom from Solomon and Jesus says as a Gentile ruler she will acknowledge that you should have repented and believed and he says and look something greater than Solomon is here and maybe right here the greater king the greater son of David, the greater wisdom, right? Jesus says, I am greater than Solomon. I am the greater king. Of course, this fits with what we find in the rest of the New Testament, describing Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is both the power of God and the wisdom of God, assigned to Jews and Greeks. In fact, he's saying there, when he says Jesus is the wisdom of God, that life only makes sense in Christ. That we can't really accurately interpret our experience outside of faith in Jesus. And so this evil, adulterous generation refuses to believe, refuses to listen. They're asking for another sign. And Jesus says, you've missed it. I'm greater than Jonah, and I'm greater than Solomon. And you don't even have to travel to find me. That generation was right there, and he had come to them. Jesus says, I am the greater king. I am the greater wisdom. Which once again begs the question, do we believe that? Do we really think that Jesus not only has wisdom, but he is wisdom? You could ask the question, who do you listen to? Who do you view as authoritative? Who do you, who do you view as wise? We have to be really careful here because who our culture views as authoritative 
doesn't necessarily right, mean that they are or should be authoritative. We have to push back a little bit. We can think about mainstream media who claims neutrality. Beware that claim. There really isn't such a thing. And that doesn't mean that everything you hear on the news is wrong per se, but it does mean you just have to filter it through a Christ-centered worldview. Right? You have to ask the question, what's the angle here? I think we could maybe ask the question, who do I listen to without questioning, right? Of course, we all know that whatever you find on the internet is true. <laughs> listen, <laughs> the chat, the whole chat GPT thing, for, if you don't care, don't care, you just tune out for a second. But the fact is you can make this AI, right? You can make it agree with you, whatever your view, your view is. It's not an objective source of truth or information. It is totally malleable. I mean, I can prove it to you later. But the fact is, that it, that's just a fact, right? But sometimes we treat the internet as, and well, we want to hear what we want to hear. So we find someone on the internet who agrees with what we want to believe or what we want to be true, and we just latch on to that. Oh, this is it, okay? And maybe they even did sleep in a Holiday Inn Express. So what? Jesus is the greater king. Jesus has the greater wisdom. He is wisdom. And so if what they're telling you, no matter how much you like it or want it to be true, if it does not uh, follow or fit in with what Jesus has said in his word, then we say no to that person and we say yes to Jesus. We have to push back. Social media is so crazy because there's so much influence that people have over each other. Influence between people who have no actual relationship. So it's just shocking to me that we are willing to believe right, what people are posting online when we have no knowledge of their person, we have no knowledge of their character, we have no knowledge of their qualifications. And then here is Jesus, who has spoken to us the word of God, who is wisdom, and we're like, eh, maybe, but the Bible's hard to understand. Or I know what he's going to say, or I know what he has said, and I just don't really want to hear that right now, so I'm just going to stick with TikTok. I'm just going to stick with this little, you know, 10-second video that, that agrees with me. Maybe it's unbelieving professionals where we think, oh, well, they, they're a doctor, so they must be right. Worldview matters. And I think we can acknowledge here that there is, there is you know, a field specificity here. So if you need, if you need physical care, Find a qualified doctor in that field to provide you physical care. If you need your car repaired, find a qualified technician who can repair your car, who knows what they're doing, right? But when we're talking about our worldview, how we make decisions about our lives, our parenting, our families, right? Our decisions that, that, that are really impact daily, how we treat others, how we handle our money, right? All these things. Worldview matters. And just because someone's a professional doesn't mean they're giving you a Christ-honoring view, so you have to just ask the question, am I really listening to Jesus as the wisdom of God? Look at the queen of the south here. The queen of Sheba, she's an example for you. She put in the work. She traveled a long way to get to Jesus. She came from far. I want, you know, sometimes we just want the lazy, like we make the lazy decision rather than doing the work. I have to, I have to talk to the pastor, Ryan. I have to go meet with somebody. I have to read the Bible. I have to do, you research this. I don't have time for that. Now she put in the work. She also humbly brought her concerns. There's something to that, I think. That she was willing to share where she needed help. 
right, willing to, to submit her, her situation to Solomon as, in one sense, a spokesman for God in that moment. I wonder, are you willing to humbly bring your concerns to the Lord? Lord, this is what I'm facing in my family. Lord, this is what I'm facing in my finances. Lord, this is the, this is the, the issue that's keeping me up at night. But Lord, I'm bringing it to you and I'm asking for you to help me respond in a way that brings you glory. And of course, she responded in worship. When you receive help from the word of God, as God's spirit guides you, and you, you actually make decisions and you see the blessing of that, do you praise God for it? Or do you take the credit? I wonder if we're listening well enough for Jesus to make a difference in our daily decision making. Do we believe that something greater than Jonah is here? Do we believe that something greater than Solomon is here? Now, the fact is, Jesus is boldly confronting the unbelief of this generation. And so that warning is there. But just to drive the point home, he tells possibly the weirdest story in the Gospels. Now, watch this parable. It's a, it's a demonic parable. He picks it up in verse 43, okay? But it's connected to the context, and I'll show you how. So he goes on. So same conversation. He goes on, and he says, When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Okay, so now he's telling you a demonic parable. So we're supposed to picture an unclean spirit that comes out of, has been, you know, possessing some person, and maybe a Jewish exorcist has driven it out or something, and so now it's roaming through the wilderness. Waterless places is the wilderness because that was, uh, you know, thought to be the abode of demons. And so he's roaming through the wilderness, looking for a place to rest, like another person. But he doesn't find anybody out in the wilderness. Okay, he doesn't find him. All right, it gets weirder. Verse 44. Then it says, the Spirit says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. House meaning the person, right? Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Now, those are significant, okay? The, the evil spirit comes back to the person, and instead of being like, oppressed by this demon, which in, in the Gospels is manifested by all these physiological symptoms, the person is put together. Now they're vacant, so they're, it's, we, they're not necessarily a believer, so that's, that's something that we have to acknowledge, but their, their house is swept and put in order, okay? And that's not going to work for the spirit. This evil spirit needs a messy house. If you want an argument for your teenagers to cleaning their rooms, here it is, okay? So here we go. Again, this is a demonic parable. But, so then what does the Spirit do? Verse 45, Then this evil spirit goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there in this person. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. He called the generation evil in verse 39. In verse 45, we have a bookend this is, what, this is what's going to happen to this evil generation. What does the demonic parable teach? You have this person, the, the, the demon leaves them, now they're, they're doing better. They're vacant, but they're, they're kind of in order. They got their act together a little bit. The, this evil spirit is gone. They come back, and I'm like, well, that's not going to work. They've got, their, they've got their stuff together, okay? I need more wickedness. So that evil spirit goes and finds seven more spirits, and they're more evil than that one is. So the number seven here, right, like it's the uber number, like the worst, okay? So now we've gone from a, a factor of one to a factor of seven, okay? These evil spirits, now eight in total, take up residence in this one person, 
And it is just an absolute nightmare because they destroy this person's life and they're under oppression and misery and suffering and just all of that, right? Jesus says, and this is the point, the end of verse 45, that's how it will be with this evil generation. Here they were, right? Unbelievers, resistant to the word of God. And yet here the Messiah comes and they have this opportunity to trust him and to be delivered and to be forgiven and to actually find true life and to be genuinely satisfied. And instead of that, they say no. And what will happen? They will face eternal judgment for that rejection of Jesus. Nineveh will judge them. The Queen of the South will judge them. And Jesus says they are far worse off in the future than they were before. That's where unbelief will take you. That's where rejection of me will take you. We shouldn't press this demonic parable too much for demonology. Jesus is not trying to teach you how demon possession works or whatever. He's telling the story to make one simple point. And that is that if you reject him, you will suffer worse and you will suffer forever. That's the point. The sign of Jonah is the sign that we need. But when we reject the greater prophet and the greater king, that rejection results in greater suffering. If we reject the greater prophet and the greater king, right, rejection of the greater prophet and king results in greater suffering. This is a loving warning to the generation. And in fact, it's recorded for us by Matthew because it's a warning to any generation. If you think you can get away with staying neutral, I think that's what the vacancy deal is. Like, eh, we don't necessarily believe him, right, whatever. If you think you can get away with staying neutral on Jesus, if you think you can ignore him and ignore his word and relegate him to an interesting religious authority from the past, but not actually the divine Messiah who took on flesh for us, who fulfilled the sign of the prophet Jonah, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, who is the greater prophet and the greater king, Right? If, if we reject all of that and we say thanks but no thanks, we will suffer more and you will suffer forever. So this is a warning. And if you're here this morning and you think there's wisdom in staying neutral on the Jesus question, Jesus says you're wrong. He says you don't have time to be neutral. And what you're risking is this fate, suffering forever. And so he says, instead of staying neutral, why not listen to the Ninevites? Why not listen to the Queen of Sheba? Why not listen to these others whose lives I have transformed by my miracles and my teaching? Why not repent of your sin and trust in me? What the world says is wise isn't wise. By the way, isn't that, isn't that our world's kind of motto on the Jesus question? Eh, if Jesus works for you, fine. But as far as the actuality of Jesus' claims, probably not, but we'll just stay neutral on it. Maybe more evidence will, will show up later, but the fact is we can neither confirm nor deny that Jesus is who he says he is. That is folly, and Jesus says it's eternal folly. Saying no to Jesus will lead to eternal suffering. So if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to consider the sign of Jonah. Consider the fact that Jesus is not just a teacher or a prophet. He's the teacher. He is the prophet. He's not a king. He's the king. And the fact is, you know what the, the sign of Jonah means? It means that he cares about you. 
because he goes to the cross for you and for me. And he conquers sin and death for you and for me. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, but you know you're not following Jesus the way you know you should, maybe just ask the question, am I taking him seriously enough? I mean, yes, I've responded in faith, but I know that I have been neglecting that faith, and I haven't been listening to Jesus and following him as my Lord and Savior. If you're looking for a sign, you've got it. Take the sign of Jonah as the sign that you need. My friend Spurgeon, back in London in the 1800s, preaching on this exact passage, he said it this way, and I thought this was really helpful. He said, perhaps many of you are well acquainted with the letter of the gospel, but you have never inquired into the spirit of it. You know that Christ is a savior, but you don't know what it is to actually be saved. You have not stirred, though God is at your doors, though Christ is close to you. You are content to sit and listen to the gospel, which is more precious than diamonds, and yet treat it as though it were a common thing. I fear that's many of us. We're content to sit and listen to the gospel, which is more precious than diamonds, and yet we treat it as though it were a common thing. If you're waiting for a sign, the sign of Jonah is it. He died for you, and he rose for you. Would you pray with me, and we'll ask him to help us respond to his word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 12. Lord, we thank you for the warning that's here the warning against the refusal to repent, the refusal to believe. And Lord, we recognize that rejection of you will result in more suffering, eternal suffering. But Lord, it doesn't have to. We can repent. And Lord, as long as we draw breath, we can turn to you in faith. And we can see the sign of Jonah and respond appropriately. We can believe and we can listen to you. And Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, I I pray if there are those here who have not trusted in you, that they would be convicted of their sin today, but they would see the sign of Jonah for what it is, the sign that they need, the proof of your love for them. Lord, and the way by which they can be forgiven. Lord, I pray for those who are here who may know that even though they've trusted in you, that they have work to do, Lord, that they're not being faithful in following you as a disciple. And so we ask for your help for them, Lord. We pray that you would help us to confess our sins and struggles, and to continue in this road of turning to you in faith and repenting. Lord, we we thank you that our salvation is a gift that cannot be taken away, but Lord, we also recognize that we have to grow as believers, that we're called to follow your Spirit. Lord, may we listen to you. May we see that you're greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon. Lord, may we do the work that we need to do in humbly bringing our concerns to you, and being willing to be instructed by you. Lord, in all of this, we ask that you would not find in in us an evil and adulterous generation, but on the contrary, you would find people who have, by your miraculous work, responded to you with faith. And Lord, may you be glorified by the change that you accomplish in us. We ask for this help. In the name of Jesus, our great Savior, amen.